like to have us please open uh, to our text this morning, which is Exodus chapter 6. And we're going to look at the first eight verses of that, Exodus chapter 6. And we're continuing a sermon series uh, this season of Lent as we anticipate Easter next week, um, going through the book of Exodus and using it as a lens uh, into everything that we're celebrating this coming week. Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and this is what the text says. The Lord said to Moses, Now you will see all that I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive, or he will let the Israelites go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them, them from his land. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But I did not make myself fully known by revealing my name to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites who have been enslaved by the Egyptians, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being their slaves, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, and that I am the one who has brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, uh, back in high school, one of uh, the friends in my friend group, Ryan, liked to think that he was the ultimate car guy. He was always bragging about how he knew more about cars uh, than the rest of us. And he certainly knew more than me. Uh, as somebody who's not much of a car guy myself, I was more than happy to let him have that title. Um, but a few of our other friends weren't so willing, especially Brad and Jason. And they argued that it was actually they who knew the most about cars, and so they deserved that title rather than Ryan. Uh, these are the sorts of uh, things that high school guys debate. At least, it's what we talked about back when I was in high school. These days, it's probably who's the best video game player, who has the longest Snapchat streak, or something like that. But um, Anyway, one day, uh, the chance came for Ryan to actually prove that he was, in fact, the biggest car guy in our group. One of our other friends, Josh, had uh, just bought a small stick shift pickup truck, and he had brought it over to Ryan's house for us all to, to check out and take a look at. And that's when Ryan decided to uh, launch into the whole debate again. Knowing that neither Brad nor Jason knew how to drive stick, uh, Ryan pridefully boasted, and that's why I really am the biggest car guy in our group because I know how to drive stick. The thing was, none of us actually knew whether or not that was true. Ryan drove an automatic, and none of us had ever seen him drive stick, and so Brad and Jason decided to call him on it. Prove it, they said. Why don't you uh, take Josh's truck for a little spin? Josh agreed, handed Ryan the keys, and we all lined up on the curb to see what would happen, whether or not he'd be able to get it going. So Ryan got in, started the engine, and put it into gear, and then as smooth as could be, he took off down the road, proving Brad and Jason wrong. At least in our little friend group, Ryan really did seem to be the biggest car guy. And so to celebrate that triumph, he took it around the block in an apparent victory lap. 
When he pulled back up at the curb a minute or two later, though, there was something definitely wrong because there was the strong smell of something burning and some kind of smoke coming out from under the hood. What did you do to my truck? Josh said. Josh said. Ryan cut the engine and sheepishly stepped out of the cab and said, I think I left the parking brake on. And it turns out that's exactly what he had done. And so a week or two later, he ended up having to fork over a couple hundred bucks so that Josh could pay to have the transmission fixed, which he had uh, damaged while driving it around the block with the brake. You see, what at first seemed to validate Ryan's claim that he was the biggest car guy in our group um, actually ended up completely invalidating that claim. Because any time any, any, uh, time that Ryan would bring up cars from that point on, Brad or Jason would bring up that story. Hey, you remember when you drove Josh's truck? The whole thing completely backfired on Ryan. Well, in a similar way, Moses' first attempt to convince Pharaoh to allow the Israelites to leave Egypt backfires on him too. In fact, I don't think uh, utter failure is too strong a term to use to describe how poorly Moses' first interaction with Pharaoh went. Just so we're caught up on the story here, um, after Moses' initial encounter with God at the burning bush where God gives him this commission to go and rescue his people, the Israelites, back in Exodus 3, which we looked at last week, Moses heads back to Egypt to get the ball rolling on that whole redemption plan. Along the way, some strange and rather mysterious stuff happens, um, but Moses finally makes it back to Egypt. He gains a co-worker along the way too, because right before he gets back to Egypt, uh, God sends his brother Aaron out to meet him. And together, the two of them launch into this, this plan to redeem the Israelites. And they go to the elders of Israel and inform them of God's plan to save them. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And he also performed the signs before the people. These were signs that God had given Moses to validate you know, what he said that God had sent him. And the Israelites believed. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery... They bowed down and worshipped. And so far, so good. Everything's going according to plan. It's going well. Uh, Moses is back in the land of Egypt. He's got his brother as a partner in the work of redeeming the Israelites. Um, It's been smooth sailing. Nothing but net. Maybe this whole free Israel thing won't be so difficult after all. The problem is that the next person on their list to meet with is Pharaoh. And he proves to be a much tougher nut to crack. Moses and Aaron go to meet him at the start of chapter 5, but it doesn't go as well as their meeting with the elders of Israel went. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And I will not let Israel go. Maybe hoping that this initial response from Pharaoh was just kind of a fluke, Moses and Aaron give it another shot, but it only seems to make things worse. Because the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. 
or require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. And that is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. And so if you're Moses or Aaron here at this point in the story, I think it's safe to say that's not the kind of response that you were hoping for. It's definitely not the kind of response that the people, the Israelites, were hoping for, though, either. Their work just got a whole lot harder, and they're not happy about it. And so they let Moses and Aaron know that in chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. The Israelite overseers realized that they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. How quickly fortunes can change, right? Because just a few verses before this, Moses and Aaron had the backing of the elders of Israel and they were all on board with this plan of God leading them out of Egypt. And now they're turning on Moses and Aaron. And honestly, if I'm Moses here, I'm probably thinking that now would be a pretty good time to to leave and head back to Midian. But he doesn't. Instead, he prays. Moses goes to God and says, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Why, Lord? Why? You have not rescued your people at all. That's a pretty bold prayer, isn't it? And yet, despite lacking the sort of pious reverence that we mistakenly think always needs to be part of our prayers, God answers Moses. And in sort of a a rehash or or remix of the calling he gave him at the burning bush in chapter 3, God reassures his wavering prophet here. You see, while it seems like this whole plan to to redeem and save the Israelites has already backfired before it even really got going, according to God, that's not the case at all. And that's where our text picks things up this morning. I'm going to read it again just so that we have it fresh in our minds as we dive into this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let the Israelites go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. There are a few things that stand out to me Uh, in this text from what God says here in his response to Moses. And so what I'd like to do for the rest of our time together this morning is simply to, to reflect on those things together. And the first one, the first thing that stands out to me, uh, from this text is just how big a calling 
God has given Moses. Just how big the work is that he's given him to do here. After all, did you notice all the things that God says he wants to accomplish in this text? He's going to liberate the Israelites and bring them out of Egypt. He's going to make them his people and he will be their God. He's going to bring them to the promised land out of their slavery. And then once they're there, he's going to establish them and make it their home. And if you know this story, if you're familiar with scripture, if you grew up in the church, then you're probably pretty familiar with all of that as well. And while it's a wonderful gift to be a Christian and be part of the church and grow up in the faith, what can sometimes happen is that when we hear these stories over and over again, they sort of lose their power. They become a bit too familiar. Because when you really step back to think about it, the stuff that God is promising his people here is really quite extraordinary. And what's even more extraordinary is that he's chosen to use Moses to accomplish it. And that brings up an important point, which is that when God calls us to be his people, it's never just about us. You see, back in the passage we looked at last week, Exodus 3, Moses receives a calling from God. And if you're here this morning and you consider yourself to be a Christian, then you've also received a calling from God. You've received a calling to have a relationship with him. You've received a calling to be one of his people You've received a calling to be part of his church. But what's important to remember is that that calling as Christians isn't just for our benefit. Far too many Christians seem to think it is. For far too many Christians, at least us North American ones, our faith has a tendency to become individualized. It's just about me and Jesus. It's just about having a personal relationship with him. It's just between me and God. And to an extent... All of that is true. There is a personal aspect to our faith as Christians. We do need to have a personal relationship with God. And to a degree, each of our relationships with God is unique to us. All of that is true. And all of that is part of our faith. It's just that that that's not the only part of our faith. And Moses' call here makes that clear. Because God has called Moses, yes, as an individual, as one person. But the calling he's given him is so much bigger than just him. Moses' calling here isn't limited only to his own personal salvation and relationship with God. Rather, God has called him for a purpose. And the same is true for us as Christians still today. As Christian believers, we're not called by God simply for our own personal, individual benefit. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. It's not just for ourselves. Instead, God has called us to be part of something much bigger and much broader than just our own individual lives. The same way that God called Moses, not just for Moses' sake, but actually for the sake of his people's redemption as a whole, God has called us as his people, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of his kingdom and for the sake of his glory in the world. In short, as Christians, our calling is not to sit idly by with a fire insurance sort of faith that's just for us. Instead, like Moses, we too are called to be about the work uh, that our Father has given us to do. That brings me to the second thing I I want us to see in this text, which is that that work doesn't always immediately go the, the way that we think it will. 
I think we have a tendency as Christians um, to think that when we do things for God's kingdom, as long as our hearts are in the right place, God will bless those things, anoint them, and immediately make them go exactly as we hope they will. Like with Moses' first meeting with Pharaoh, though, that's not always the case. Instead, sometimes our efforts for the kingdom don't succeed the first time. Sometimes they don't succeed the second or third time either, or the fourth, or the fifth. In fact, sometimes we don't really know how they're going to turn out. It reminds me of a story I heard a few years ago from a friend of mine in Milwaukee. Um, my friend is a Christian, but she didn't grow up as a Christian. And so like most people who come to faith later on in life, she's, she's passionate about sharing her faith. Because she knows what it's like not to have Christ in her life, when she meets somebody who doesn't know him, she wants to share about him and help bring them to a faith and relationship with him as well. And as a result, she's made it a habit in her life to share her faith with people she comes across who don't know God. One day, my friend was walking through downtown Milwaukee when she ran into an old uh, classmate from high school. They started talking and catching up and sharing about what was going on in their lives and what had happened since high school. And per her habit, my friend at one point steered the conversation towards her faith. She said, let me tell you about something that's happened in my life since high school. And she tried to share the gospel with him. Her classmate was highly offended, though. Look, I was happy to see you, he said, but I don't, I don't want to hear about this. I don't believe any of that stuff. Well, I do, she said, and I care about you, and I, I want you to know God as well. Unfortunately, instead of continuing to talk with her, her classmate um, cussed her out, actually, brushed past her, and walked off in the other direction. And my friend thought that was the end of it. It certainly didn't seem like it had been a successful evangelism encounter. Until that is, she received an email a few years later from that same classmate. Hey, I just want you to know that I became a Christian, he wrote. Um, I don't know if you remember this, probably not, but a few years ago you tried to share the gospel with me when we ran into each other downtown. And I remember getting angry, cussing you out, and storming off. You probably thought that there is no way I'd ever become a Christian after that. In fact, I thought there was no way I'd ever become a Christian after that. But I never forgot our conversation that day. I couldn't get it out of my head that you felt so strongly about what you believed that you would risk my anger and frustration to tell me. God kept nagging me about that for years. And just a few months ago, he used another Christian friend of mine to bring me to faith. That friend is the lucky one because he got to see me cross the finish line into belief but I wanted you to know that you were the one who got the ball rolling. Probably didn't seem like it at the time, but that conversation with you on that street in downtown Milwaukee was the first step that God used to eventually bring me to faith. And I just wanted to thank you for having the courage to take it. Again, sometimes our efforts for the kingdom don't always work out the first time. Moses' first attempt to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites didn't work. And yet part of the encouragement, I think, of this text is that we shouldn't give up after the first failure, or the second, or the third, or the fourth, fifth, or sixth, because not all the things that we think backfire actually do. Instead, sometimes God uses those backfires too. And all we're called to do as his people 
is to continue to be faithful, whether we feel like we're always seeing the results or not. Jesus' disciples had to do that too. As we mentioned already, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the Christian commemoration of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, The way that it goes is that after a long meandering journey through the Holy Land uh, from where he was ministering up in Galilee, Jesus finally arrives in the city of Jerusalem to great fanfare and excitement. And the reason for all that excitement is because people have all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is. They think maybe that he's a conquering king and a soon-to-be victorious military leader. They think he's come to kick the Romans out and cleanse the land of all their corrupting influence. They think that he'll restore the ancient boundaries of the kingdom of David and reestablish Israel to her rightful place as God's chosen nation. And Jesus' own disciples were no exceptions. When you read through the gospel narratives, it's clear that Jesus' disciples believed many of the same things about Jesus that pretty much everyone else did. How different, then, it must have been when Jesus' entry to Jerusalem and the events of the week after were entirely different from what they expected. For instance, rather than a white war horse, Jesus chose to ride a humble donkey into the city. Rather than clear the Romans out, instead he cleared the temple. And rather than fight and win the decisive battle against the powers that had invaded the land of Israel and had overtaken it, it was those very same powers that instead crucified and killed him. Just like with Moses' encounter with Pharaoh, it must have seemed to Jesus' disciples that their hope in him had backfired. Except it hadn't. And that brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, Jesus had come as a conquering king and military leader. And he would indeed liberate the land and his people from the hostile forces that had overtaken them. And he was, in fact, going to restore and reestablish the Longford kingdom. It's just that rather than becoming king of Israel, he would become king of all creation. Rather than liberating his people from the Romans, he had come to liberate them instead from sin and death. And rather, sorry, I lost my place. And rather than restoring the kingdom of David, he had instead come to restore the kingdom of God. Just like God helps Moses reframe his expectations for how the exodus from Egypt is going to go in our passage this morning, Jesus' disciples needed to reframe their Palm Sunday expectations of him too. And so do we. And that's what this entire season of Lent has been about. That's part of why we spend time fasting during these 40 days of Lent that lead up to Easter. It's why we practice repentance during Lent. It's why we engage in 40 days of solemn lament and sorrow over our sins. It's a season of reframing our expectations of who Jesus is, refocusing our relationship with him, and reorienting our lives around him once more. You see, Just like God's plan of redemption for Israel didn't end with Moses' first failure with Pharaoh, God's plan to redeem us didn't end with Jesus' death either. And that's because he didn't stay dead. Instead, as we'll celebrate in one week's time, he rose. He defeated sin and death. He conquered the grave. He rose to new life so that we could experience that new life too. Once again, God's plan with his people didn't backfire. 
Instead, it went exactly the way he meant it to. Thanks be to God. Amen.